Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law podcast series. I'm Andrew Dyson, partner at DLA Piper, where I specialise in data protection and cybersecurity. I'm delighted to introduce you to this particular podcast where we will be exploring why cybersecurity has, in recent years, become a particular area of concern to boardrooms. Today, I'll be joined by Jeroen Haller from Mandiant FireEye and James McGacky, a legal director at DLA Piper. Jeroen, would you just like to explain a little bit more about what you do and how you get involved in cyber breaches. Yeah, sure. So uh, happy to be here, obviously. Um, um, yeah, I work for uh, I work for Mandiant. I'm a director for uh, uh, for Mandiant Professional Services um, for the Europe West region. Uh, I have a team of consultants that uh, uh, assist basically organizations in dealing with breaches, mm-hmm. um, uh, as well as prepare them to um, uh, to deal with breaches. So it's, uh, it's proactive as well as uh, reactive service that we provide. And uh, Mandiant's been around since 2004, world leader, I would say, in uh, incident response. I think that's right. You get involved in a lot of the high-profile breaches and yes. many of the yeah. ones that, that, that go under the radar but involve very Yes, absolutely. Yes. I'm also delighted to be joined by uh, my colleague James, James McGacky. James, would you like to explain how you kind of play into the conversation? Sure, today? Andrew. I'm a legal director in the litigation and regulatory team at DLA, and my role is to assist clients uh, when they become aware of a breach or at least the threat of a breach in terms of advising them on their obligations and reporting that to the ICO and wider stakeholders. So what I'd like to explore in the conversation really is how, you know, a little bit starts off by talking about a little bit of the landscape so we understand the benefit of those joining the podcast, what the real risks are in, in, in cyber breach and then take us through a logical step of if a breach happens, how may that happen typically and how would an organisation respond to that and all the way through this thinking about well, what are the legal risks, the regulatory risks, the practical challenges from a technical point of view um, and, and, and ultimately thinking about the lessons learned. So, sure. Jeroen, can I just start by asking you to comment a little bit on the, what I call a threat landscape? Could you just comment a little bit about that and, and how that kind of plays into what I might call the threat actors who are out there? Yes. So basically, when, uh, when we deal with breaches, most of the time, um, um, we either deal with what we call uh, financial, uh, financially motivated uh, threat actors or what we call uh, advanced persistent threat um, actors, and th- those are more uh, politically or economically motivated. Um, so it, it really depends on what kind of organization you are and what kind of, let's say, data you're sitting on or what kind of value resides in your organization that may be interesting to, uh, to threat actors out there. When you look at the financial threat actors, you know, they're typically going after, for instance, a credit card data, right? And they want to monetize, uh, they want to monetize that. Um, and on the other hand, you have what we call the advanced persistent threat actors, uh, the more economically or politically motivated threat actors. And they are more like, you know, it's the James Bond style stuff. It's uh, espionage that may be going after intellectual property of organizations or uh, large volumes of, uh, of PII. And it is important basically to talk about the threat landscape because Obviously, this comes down to organizations having to defend themselves you know, against the threats that are out there. And uh, you can't really be effective in defending your organization if you, if you just don't understand yeah, who you're up against. I think that's a really important point, is it? I mean, how far do you think companies do understand that landscape? I mean, because you understand it because you deal with it all the time and it's your world. Yes. But, you know, how many organizations really do understand that dynamic? And that I, what think, I think, uh, on, like say, on a generic level, they understand that there is financial threat actors and, and uh, you know, the APT threat actors. It, it, it becomes harder to, you know, to understand 
what their capabilities are and, and you know, what, what the techniques are that they use and how persistent they are in, in really accomplishing their goals. And because that will really define the capabilities that you need to have as an organization to be able to kind of withstand uh, you know the efforts from the uh, from those from those threat actors, and so it's not so much about. I mean, you can read in the you know in the news and in in, in about those threat actors. You know, sure. they exist, and you know there's publications about it. That's fine, but uh, the gist of it is in translating it into capabilities, and you know their capabilities. You know, how good are they in yes. penetrating my organization? How well do my defenses really need to be? And you know, what what kind of processes and what kind of tools and what kind of expertise do I need to have in-house? In, 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 it's kind of common at the moment if an organization faces a, a hard kind of impact of, of, a, of a breach that they will try to resolve that internally. They may have some insights to what's happened. They may have got some specialists helping to yes. kind of help open up that understanding. But historically, that information has not been shared, has it? It just sits within the organization, and yeah. maybe one CISO yeah. speaks to another because they trust each other, but that's not really kind of getting that insight across the, the landscape, and that itself has been historically a bit of a challenge, hasn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, organizations in general have never been too keen on, uh, on sharing uh, that, that, that they've been breached, right? So it's been very hush-hush, and uh, uh, only in certain cases it... it, 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 it it became public because maybe the threat actor made it public, or it was so obvious, you know, that was something was going on because certain data was posted on some, uh, you know, on some website somewhere. So you you, you basically can't deny it anymore, yeah. right? Um, um, so organizations have been typically very hush hush about it, but we've seen that changed over uh, over the years, I would say, and because there's a lot of benefit in um, in sharing information, uh, especially with your, you know, with your peers in, in a certain industry before. And that's uh, what I was going to bring you in, because, you know, you're looking at the regulatory landscape, and I think the regulators are latching onto this, aren't they? They're recognising that actually there's a role to play here for the regulators and, and law to actually encourage people to feel like, you know, if you're a bank, you should be sharing with other banks some sure. of these issues. If you're an airline, you should be sharing with the rare lines, because it's a, we talk about threat actors, they are in particular areas, sectors, geographies, technologies, and and they are picking people off on a salami slice basis at the moment. Absolutely, Andrew. There's a much more emphasis on transparency there. And I think that has in part been caused by the public becoming a lot more accustomed to data breaches than they were, say, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, five years ago, even a breach would be big news. With the regularity we're seeing now, it's becoming less front page and perhaps businesses are a bit more willing to be transparent and discuss the circumstances and the learnings that can be gained from having that discussion on a more regular basis. I think that translates to how the regulators are approaching breaches too as well. I mean, in my recent experience with the ICO, there's a much greater emphasis on resilience and how you will respond to a breach uh, and how you are ensuring that it will not occur in the future and as far as possible than how the breach itself occurred. And, and I think that's good advice for any organisation that suffers a breach. Think about how you can t contain this. Think about how you can uh, instill confidence in your customers and staff that you have contained this uh, because that's how you will be judged in this day and age. You won't be judged on the fact you've had a breach. That's almost a uh, when, not if these days. You'll be judged on how you respond to that and how quickly you get things back up and running. And there are specific guidelines, well, requirements now coming out of, maybe you can comment on the Network Information Security Directive, the NIST Directive, and there's equivalent in the US, the NIST um, requirements that, that do mandate particular industries, which are perceived to be kind of critical infrastructure, to actually do that proactive data sharing, that proactive 
preparation. That's right, and that cultural shift can only be a benefit, I think, Andrew. So, so I think it's key that people get that and understand that. Yeah. So if we, if we kind of move forward and start thinking about the, uh, the scenario where something, you know, you talk there about, you know, these breaches will happen, the defences can only ever be so high. Can you comment a little bit further on that? Companies will have to continue to invest in preventative, in preventative measures, right? You, you need to raise the bar as high as possible, um, um, obviously. Um, but you also need to be aware that um, well, certain threat actors, you know, the, the advanced ones, th they have an objective and um, they're, they're not going to let you off the hook, um, um, you know, when they have tried once and kind of failed. Um, they will try again because the stakes for them are really, really high and uh, they will come after certain organizations and they will persist. But you need to understand that the attacker has so much time and so much motivation to become successful that it's very likely that he will be successful. So you need to also prepare that you're going to fail at some point in preventing stuff and you need to have other mechanisms in place mm -hmm. Uh, to deal with you know, a situation of failure uh, resulting in a breach, basically. And I think that's what you're alluding to before, isn't it, James, in the sense that the regulators are more sophisticated than saying, there's a breach, you're a terrible organisation, we're going to hit you with a fine. It's much more about, we expect there to be some kind of breaches because the environment is only ever going to be, you know, your 99% resilience or whatever it might be. And, and, and what we're really interested in, of course, have the right defences that's fit for purpose and proportionality is something to talk about. But um, it's, we're also interested in how you are prepared for this. And are you an organisation that's going to understand what you need to do to manage the risk when the problems hit and be prepared for that? Yes, and I think having an instant response team teed up to step right in as soon as the breach occurs is... Paramount, I mean, that's best practice that's been followed by most organisations now. Don't have that as a team that only gets together in the event of a breach. Have that team meet regularly. You have fire drills in your organisations fairly frequently. Why not have a hack drill on a fairly frequent basis as well? Have external people come in, run perhaps a mock hack, just to show you how this will actually play out in practical terms rather than just having the theory sitting in a document in a drawer. takes us neatly into that next step really isn't it saying so you can prepare and you can invest and so on but let's assume you know you're going to get hit at some point you're going to have a breach so so what typically happens then I mean can you kind of just I mean, you see so many of these on a day-to-day -day basis very routinely um, but they're not routine for the organizations that face it but could you just sort of talk a little bit about you know the typical nature in which these threats present themselves in the organization and actually escalate up through the kind of tiers of management yeah so you need to understand that threat actors have an objective, right? And uh, um, that can be stealing uh, intellectual property or uh, large volumes of, of PAI or your credit card data or whatever. They, they have a certain goal um, and um, that, 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 that'll be like data. It's around data and data sits on systems somewhere in an organization's infrastructure, somewhere deep down. And you know you you just can't touch that straight away, right? And there's a threat actor that sits in I don't know uh, Russia, China, or whatever, and wants to get their hands on data. So they don't just touch it straight away. They just have to find a way to 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 that data. So they need to compromise or penetrate your infrastructure. So um, what they will do first is they will try to get an initial first foothold into the organization, and that usually means either compromising an employee's workstation, getting access to one workstation, 
uh, or maybe uh, you know hacking a web server that is internet facing um, and, and that would be the first foothold into the infrastructure of the target organization and for instance when you look at compromising an employee's workstation uh, a lot of the time that is done through phishing email and so that is the initial foothold when they have reached that let, let's say uh, sub objective obviously they have not reached their main objective yet so they don't have the hands on the you know that large volume of pii that they want to steal they just sit on this one uh, uh, workstation somewhere in that infrastructure so what they need to do is they need to find a way all the way down to that you know, that, 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 that vital system that sits somewhere in that infrastructure. So they will use a series of hacking techniques um, to, uh, to accomplish that. And one of the things that they will try to do is to actually obtain what we call um, administrator privileges uh, of an organization's infrastructure. And when they have that, they basically, like I said, they have the, they have the, king, uh, the, the key to the kingdom and can basically just do whatever they want to do inside an infrastructure and go wherever they want to go inside an infrastructure. Well, I think one thing that's really interesting that I've kind of learned over the years and you know some of the publications that you've produced have helped me understand this is that can happen well before the organization really understands that there is yes, technically yeah. an incident. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, yeah. do you want that's to talk right. a little bit about the, the kind of the time lag that, yeah. that, that so applies? The funny thing is we do uh, what we call red teaming exercises uh, as well as a company that is kind of that, that is basically on purpose hacking into an organization right so basically just doing what the what the actual threat actors are doing um, so we send phishing email and, and and do that whole and do that whole scenario um, i think i would say on average it would take us about three days to obtain administrative uh, credentials inside an organization so it, it'll take us three days uh, before we have uh, total control of an organization's infrastructure. And sometimes it, you know, it, it'll, it it's an then, average, right? Sometimes can, it'll, it'll be a couple in. of hours and, the, and then and it's Once gone. they're in, they can sit there for months. Yes. Is that right? Before, yeah, and, that's before. They, and that's what they will do. So before anyone becomes aware of this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, as, as Mannion, we, we have, uh, we've done statistics over the years, uh, uh, kind of uh, measuring what we call the, the, the dwell time. So that's the time between mm -hmm. the initial compromise and uh, them actually uh, being discovered, right? And that dwell time, um, over the last year from all the investigation that we've done worldwide was um, about 100 days. Mm -hmm. So that's you know, a little over three months time. Um, so you have, let's say 100 days, right? So you take 100 days, you take off the three days from, that you need to, uh, to become okay. a domain admin. Uh, so you have uh, uh, 97 days left of actually free roaming everywhere inside an organization infrastructure, being able to touch any system any data that sits in that, in that so, so, so James, if we look at the regulatory position, so if you look into, the, for example, the GDPR, it talks about notification to the regulator of a breach, personal data breach, which is basically when personal data has become compromised, um, and I'm simplifying there, but within, as soon as possible, using the words, undue delay, I think, and in any event within 72 hours. So how does that tally up with... 100 days where something could be going on and you're just not aware of it. Well, on the face of it, that's a really difficult challenge, Andrew. I mean, at the moment, we advise clients uh, when they have a breach to come to us. We'll talk about it. We will work out how we put together the most coherent explanation to and comprehensive explanation to the ICO to ensure that the ICO has some confidence that we know what we're doing and there is a good story to tell in terms of what steps we're taking to resolve that. On the face of it, the GDPR doesn't allow you the luxury of that time. 72 hours, as, you, as you've mentioned, is, is what the GDPR states. Thankfully, there may be some um, 
basis to, to perhaps have a staggered reporting approach. The Article 29 Working Group has certainly endorsed an approach where there may be a preliminary, a preliminary report, if you like, within the 72 hours with more to follow thereafter. So I think it's, it, that, that clock effectively starts ticking when you become aware yes. of the situation, which is at the end of your 100 days. And then I think what you're alluding to there is the fact that you've got uh, even at that point, it may take, as you were saying, you know, I think you, your, your professional view is that it's, you know, it's almost impossible to get a view within 72 hours of what's going on. No, it's not possible. I mean, you know, in some cases, maybe, you know, where, where it's very obvious what, what exactly happened and, uh, you know, maybe you can you, you, like sketch that complete picture. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about big organizations that get breached with, you know, thousands and thousands of systems that, you know, need to be investigated to understand, let's say, the full scope of, uh, of an incident. There's just no way you can you can have that complete picture in 72 But within 72 hours, you should be able to form a view as to whether hours. or not something's happened. Yeah, well, or, you know... Or, or in, less than innocent, if that makes sense. You can probably find out that something has happened, you know, within within 72 hours. You just you, you probably just can't tell a lot about what exactly it is that happened, you know, and, and, and what the impact of it was, you know, how much data was, you know, exfiltrated or, you know, and how was it done? And uh, all those questions around, you know, around an incident that go beyond just, you know, yeah, something happened. Okay, well, I guess you, you're able to report that something happened, but mm -hmm. it kind of stops there, right? So, yeah, we know that data was maybe leaked and yeah. you know, that's where it kind of ends. I think what you've just described, Jerome, really emphasises for me the importance of having external forensic yeah. consultants on board at this stage. You don't want to be scrabbling around in the event of a breach trying to find someone to give you that outside input. And the importance of that outside input is that to ensure that you can have a completely objective view yeah. of what has gone on. You're not relying on your own in-house IT team who, you know, in the situation you describe in terms of user access, the breach could be occasioned, say, by a weak password. You don't want your own IT team in that situation marking their own homework, right. which may, yeah. by human nature, result in a more subjective uh, response than would be the case yeah. in having an external actor come in and give a fully objective report. Yeah, I mean, doing breach investigations is pretty intense as well, right? So if you have your own IT team having to do their day-to-day -day job as well, and, and, and beside that, kind of run an investigation. That, yeah, that's, that's and there is a third possible. dynamic here as well, isn't there? Which is that you've got the senior management who get involved. So this is not something that just gets contained at the IT, I mean, it might do initially, but it very quickly escalates up because we've yeah. all seen on some fairly recent high-profile situations, how you know very large organisations have had you know senior, or I'm talking about CEO level um, managers having to resign on the back of data breaches that are not being properly managed, and that must be front and centre of any CEO or CIO or CISO when one of these breaches kick in, and that creates another dynamic because you know you need space. I think you need to be able to do the job properly. People need to feel that they can be professional in their approach. But if someone's breathing down the neck, thinking. I've got to, I need an answer today or in the next two hours or whatever it might be. And it's just not there. It drives all the wrong no. behaviours. And I think right. you've, you've probably been at the front and centre of some of those conversations. Yes. A, a victim organisation wants answers uh, as fast as possible, obviously. You know, that's, that's just the, uh, you know, the, the first reaction that they have. But from a practical perspective, that's just not, that's just not possible. It just takes time to do a proper investigation. Um, so it's really important that you kind of manage expectations uh, also towards, uh, um, you know, authorities. Because uh, yeah. I think there's legal risk, because if, if, if the temptation is always to say more, because people, all your customers are going to be asking you questions, the press may be asking you questions, the yeah. CEO or whatever thinks I need to have an answer, the temptation will always be to say more. And if you don't have the facts, yeah. you say something which is inaccurate, and that comes back and it haunts yeah. you, doesn't it? It's worse. Yeah. It's worse. That's worse. 
Yeah. That's why you, you really need to manage what you put out there, and you need, really need to be careful. And you know, that, that's probably also something that you that you maybe want to get external uh, uh, guidance on on how to communicate, what to communicate, and not exactly. to over communicate, and like not to stay you know state certain things as facts while maybe it's not factual, and you have to come back on that, and that's, that's going to hurt is, your reputation uh, really, really bad. That's absolutely right because yeah. I think it's for two reasons. One, in terms of ensuring that the regulator uh, is fully appraised of the actual facts and also for the secondary risk that perhaps isn't always apparent when people are, have a tunnel vision on what they need to report to the regulator, the ICO, and are not thinking about the wider picture in terms of what risks could there be in terms of customers trying to take some action against us for the loss of this data. We're seeing a massive growth in privacy litigation. Customers who uh, are approached by firms of solicitors who say, well, actually, you ha this breach happened, you were one of the customers, were you distressed? If you were distressed, we can raise an action on your behalf. And bearing in mind that there's no need now to show any financial loss, distress alone gives you a ground for action in terms of a privacy claim. This is an area that we will yeah, so, predict so, so, being massive. So managing that message is critical. And, yes, and as you say, you need to get all this aligned. You need the C-suite to only to be on message. You need your staff to know what they need to know, but no more. You need you need professional support to do this. I mean, the, the messaging has to be aligned to the regulatory messaging. It has to be aligned to the technical facts. And you know, when we have been involved in these scenarios, it's it's fallen often to the kind of the lawyers sitting down with the PR consultants to get it all right. Because if people are off message, you create un undue risk, and it just escalates, and it's 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 just it, it comes back to haunt you. Um, so I think when you're in that crisis scenario, I think you know our sort of view would be that get the professionals together. Have, have a plan, work in a consistent way, try to buy as much time as possible, deal with your regulatory responsibilities, um, but recognise really it's going to take a long time to yes. at least remediate. Yes. I think another challenge that I've kind of picked up over the years is the fact that the temptation will be, we've found out there's a problem, we've got to kind of lock it all down straight away. That's not necessarily always the right thing to do, is it? No, it's not. And um, um, it's it probably, it's, it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, uh, comp companies want to do that. Uh, they find out they have an issue. They think they know enough of the, uh, of the issue that they can now can try to get rid of it real fast. And, you know, the crisis be done with. And that's and that's just in most cases not the uh, not the sensible thing to do. Like I said uh, before, the, the the threat actor is likely uh, in your infrastructure for uh, a prolonged period of time, months. We've seen cases where it's been really years. Um, and uh, from that, it it is also very likely that they will have created for themselves multiple ways of access into the organization's infrastructure. So they won't rely on that one compromised machine that they you know that they kind of uh, gained control over through that through that one phishing email now they will have taken their time to ensure they have multiple ways in inside the company's uh, uh, infrastructure so what you eventually want to do is what we call remediation is clean up the environment and kick the threat actor out basically and you know shut off the uh, um, uh, the environment and you know kind of uh, hoping to go back to uh, to business uh, to business as usual for that you need to basically remove and make sure that you remove all these alternative ways into your infrastructure because if you forget one they will have this alternative access to your infrastructure after you did your big bang 
you know, a remediation effort at some point uh, prematurely. And you have this one access point left, the guy comes back in and, uh, you know, the Monday morning when, you're, when you would have hoped that everything was jolly again, uh, the guy is still inside your infrastructure. Yeah, and and again, you're back, basically back to square one. And again, well, I think it's probably worse than that. Isn't it? So you're back a step beyond that because you've kind yes. of gone out possibly to the regulator and everyone said, this yeah. is the problem, we've yeah. dealt with it in this particular yes. way, we're keen to kind of get on with our day-to-day -day business, yeah. Yeah. and actually it turns out you haven't dealt with it. No. And so, that suggests yeah. that there's and even the, the underlying weakness in the entire system, which is going to, I suspect, from a regulatory perspective, yeah. drive more focus on that business yeah. and yeah. saying, and, and certainly if you look at investors and shareholders and all the other people that have a stakeholder interest in this, they're going to lose complete confidence in senior yeah. management at that yeah. point. Yeah, they need, companies need to be a little bit patient. And I, and I know that is really hard, right? Because you know that there is a threat actor in your, or has been in your infrastructure, and maybe he is still active inside your infrastructure. We see that when we do investigation, that there is live activity from that particular threat actor. You see it happening, and a company will go like, well, you know, we need to get rid of him, and they get yeah. really nervous. But if you move to remediation prematurely, um, that might hurt you real bad. So you need to be patient um, and, and basically stick it out for a little bit and you know, kind of trust that, that that approach will give you the highest level of assurance that when you do the remediation, it's going to be a successful remediation. One of the key stakeholders that we are seeing in a, as the digital environment kind of grows and the sort of in the supply chain of particularly cloud and hosted solutions becomes more protracted is is the relationship between vendors and customers so historically you know big companies have maintained a lot of their systems in-house but with the kind of digital kind of environment being what it is and cloud growing that there's increasing percentages of, of businesses are just relying on third parties to look after their data for them and whilst they might have their own house in order um, when there's a data breach in the supply chain that then creates an added complexity to this. So when you've, the breach is happening in exactly the way you've described it, you're in, and everyone's looking at this and thinking, right, now we've got to tell our customers, our corporate customers, what's happened with their data. It's not our data, it's their data. Um, you know, what, what does that typically do, James, in terms of triggering you know, a whole series of other complexities in this, this space? I, I think in the event that our processor having a breach, uh, Andrew, the, there's a uh, perhaps natural instinct to rush to the contract and think about what contractual rights you may have, uh, which le levers you can pull to try and get the processor on board. It's not a scenario you really want to be in uh, in terms of only having the contract to rely on. You want to ensure there's good dialogue with the processor. You want to ensure there's a good relationship whereby they will be willing to furnish you with information you need uh, very early on in the process of a breach. But before all of that, you also want to make sure that you've got the right processor on board as well. You want to make sure you've done good due diligence on that processor to make sure that they are well known in the field and they are someone you can trust with the current jewels, if you like, the, the new oil as data has been described that you're passing to this third party to safeguard on your behalf. Because there can be a tendency, and maybe this is a bit of an overgeneralization, to, to sort of you know, use an extended supply chain because it's convenient, because it's cost effective, because it drives down the kind of the cost of doing business um, by working with others. Uh, but if, if you, as you say, you're putting crown jewels in the hands of these organisations, are you doing the right checks and balances to make sure you're actually working with the right people with the right controls? Um, and if you're a big banker and insurance company, you really need to be asking, well, why is that small company over there? They may be very innovative and got some great ideas, but why am I putting my 
kind of regulated data for which I have responsibility and potentially could be exposed to very significant fines in the hands of someone down there, do I really know that I'm doing that? And do I understand what risk that's exposing me to? And have I done the right due diligence on that organisation? Now, of course, if they are somebody who is sophisticated, even if they're small and they understand the regulatory landscape and they have strong contracts and they're happy to kind of share things that go wrong and work with you in terms of auditing their systems and controls, then that's one thing. But I, I suspect you're in that's not always the case. And some of the breaches, the more challenging breaches, have been actually down in that supply chain. Yeah, and, and, and your vendors or your partners may be reluctant to uh, cooperate in investigations. So, you know, while from a technical perspective, it may be really, really necessary that you kind of include you know, their network in the scope of the investigation, but they may be reluctant because maybe it's, you know, there's data of other of their, you know, of more customers of, uh, of theirs and they don't want you to have access to that or, you know, get eyes on that data. So it, it may become really complicated and uh, uncomfortable. Uh, um, so that, that is something that you really need to kind of work out beforehand. Um, and not wait until you get, uh, you know, kind of forced into the situation. Well, I think the GDPR is one area where this has is going to change because the GDPR mandates that any processor, any vendor who is processing personal data must notify breaches immediately of, become, of becoming aware of them and then they must kind of interact in that sort of way with the, with the customer. But there are practical issues with that, aren't there? I mean, if you've got a thousand customers, which is not untypical for a cloud, and you're a small cloud vendor, I mean, absolutely, the contract is... The contract secondary, really, and we've seen that in practice, where we've had uh, large-scale breaches that have, on the part of one processor that have affected numerous customers, numerous clients, and uh, it's a challenge at times to try and get the processor fully on board uh, to ensure that they will furnish you with the information you need to make appropriate communications to the ICO and to customers. Kind of look at the end of this journey, if you like. We've kind of looked at the landscape. We've seen the kind of the practicalities of dealing with breaches and the impact it could have on the supply chain. You know, looking looking back on all this, I mean, there are lessons to be learned, aren't there? I think you touched on this before in terms of thinking. Actually, let's work out what we should be doing to best manage ourselves as an organisation. That if a breach happens, and let's assume one will happen, that we are able to accommodate that. We know what to do. We know that we've got a plan, that we know who to call. We know that yeah. those people can kind of sit around a table, that they will understand how to communicate with each other, need to know which experts are going to bring in, whether it's the forensics or the legal or the PR consultants, to help us to get through this. Is that, you know, that is something which is often recommended, but it's, I mean, you know, you, I think we all work in this space, but we see these live desktop examples. I think they do work really, really well, don't they, in terms of lifting people's perspectives it, it's basically just going through exercises and exposing yourself to you know to those situations that you may not ever get exposed to in uh, in, in in real life or or maybe only once and so i think it's really really beneficial that organizations train themselves uh, uh up front uh, because you know what you're going to be facing right uh, from all sorts of angles you know you're going to have pr issues you know you're going to have technology issues you know you're going to have uh, uh, other stakeholder issues and, and what have you so I mean, there's all sorts of stuff you can predefine you can train you can test uh, you can build routine you know for that one eventuality basically okay. and that's going to help from a regulatory perspective isn't it? if you are seen to be prepared yeah, and responsible that's all to the heart of 
adequate measures and appropriate technical measures, isn't it's it? It's exactly the kind of thing you will be rolling out to the ICO without any difficulty if you've invested that time and effort at this stage and will be inspiring some confidence in the ICO that you are on top of this and you have systems in place uh, yep. to avoid this happening again and there's been some unexpected incident that's caused uh, the, the breach that you're dealing with. I think the time and effort that has to be spent at this stage it's a message for C-suite, I think the time and effort at this stage is minimal uh, in terms of the overall benefit that will bring yeah. uh, in the event of a breach. Put the effort in now and you will be rewarded if you ever need to rely on that effort in well, future. That's a very positive way to conclude this discussion about what is a kind of difficult and a it's a difficult topic and it's one that is sort of in conflict with so much of what we normally see when we're talking about innovation and technology which I know is the sort of heart of this podcast series but you know it is risk and it's it comes with the more innovation that goes on the more data that gets generated um, but I think there are some good messages in there for organizations to take forward positively and be prepared don't put sideline this issue and risk get your arms around it, understand what it means, share information, go, go find out more and, 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 and challenge yourself and challenge your suppliers. And I think if you do that, then you're going to be well placed to, to, to move forward. So, so on that note, I'd like to just pass on my thanks, Yaron, to yourself and James for joining us at this session today. You, it's been a great discussion. Thank you. Thanks to Yaron and James for sharing their insights. In the meantime, do look out for further podcasts from the global business law firm DLA Piper as we explore the influence of emerging technologies in business and wider society. The first three podcasts focusing on fintech and artificial intelligence are available for you to listen on our website, and they can also be accessed via iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you from me, DLA Piper lawyer, Andrew Dyson.